Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the grandson of the elderly white man who shot a black teenager in the head for ringing his doorbell told the Kansas City Star that their relationship had unraveled as his grandfather began watching, quote, Fox News all day, every day, close quote, and sank into a, quote, 24-hour news cycle of fear, of paranoia, close quote. Well, those words had a poignant resonance for many people who feel they've lost family members and friends to a kind of cult that's not secret, but pumped into the airwaves every day. Hate-fueled and hate-fueling media have political and historical impacts and interpersonal familial ones as well. The Brainwashing of My Dad, the 2016 film and the book based on it, reflect filmmaker, activist, and author Jen Senko's effort to engage the multi-level effects of that yelling, punching down reactionary media, as well as how we can respond. We'll hear from Jen Senko today on Counterspin. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Over 340,000 workers at UPS could launch the largest strike against a single company in U.S. history this August when their collective bargaining agreement expires. As labor journalist and host of the Upsurge podcast Teddy Ostro writes for FAIR.org, the top package courier in the world, which has seen two straight years of record-breaking profits, is considering whether to refuse workers' demands to raise the poverty pay of part-time warehouse workers, reestablish equal pay for equal work among delivery drivers, and introduce extreme heat-related and other safety protections, among other issues. Public understanding of negotiations between UPS and the Teamsters Union, which represents the workers, will have a lot to do with media reporting. And history urges thoughtful attention, let's say. Last year, when 115,000 railroad workers inched towards a strike, only for President Biden and Congress to legislatively force a less-than-satisfactory labor contract on them, news media were quick to relay their pro-corporate sympathies. Outlets declared that the Senate averted or prevented or headed off a freight rail strike that was looming and would have been crippling. Those word choices depict the potential work stoppage as a national catastrophe, threatened by greedy workers and then courageously warded off by neutral arbiters. But that crisis-averted narrative obscures the class dynamics of strikes, and that in the case of the rail strike, Biden and Congress preemptively broke one on behalf of multi-billion dollar corporations and in violation of workers' right to withhold their labor. We should look out for a similar kind of shadow to be cast on a strike at UPS, a company that transports about 6% of the country's GDP and may be railroad company's largest customer. Business Insider has warned that, quote, a driver strike threatens to upend millions of deliveries, close quote, while Fortune teed up the strike as one that could, quote, hurt virtually every American, close quote. 
There are exceptions, but corporate media virtually always overshadow the stakes for the workers who, among other sacrifices, forego much of their paychecks to hit the picket line with hysterics about disruption to the flow of capital. Framing that says workers are holding the economy hostage is vague rhetoric that serves to identify the reader with corporations. Outlets like Fortune aren't making a mistake when they tell readers a strike might happen, quote, even though delivery drivers already earn upwards of $95,000 a year, close quote. They just assume readers won't bother to find out that the majority of the UPS workforce are not drivers, and many of them earn as little as $15.50 an hour. And then while outlets take pains to note UPS is spending $270 million on safety for its workers, the same outlets, oops, accidentally omit that the corporation's revenues surpassed $100 billion last year, and CEO Tomei took home $19 million in what media call, without scare quotes, compensation. Unions are more popular than they have been in nearly six decades. UPS delivery drivers are in ever more contact with an e-commerce reliant public. And many newsrooms are actually undergoing a unionization wave themselves. So the adversities of logistic workers at multi-billion dollar corporations like Amazon and like UPS are now more popularly known. So lots of folks might be understanding of a labor action by UPS workers and might even understand that elite media might not bring them the full story. You might see that as a problem or you could see it as an opportunity. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The Brainwashing of My Dad, the 2015 film and the 2021 book based on it, are part family memoir, part historical excavation of the rise of right-wing media in the U.S., and part resource on ways we can resist its influence. Filmmaker, activist, and author Jen Senko joins us now by phone from New Jersey. Welcome to Counterspin, Jen Senko. Thanks for welcoming, Janice. Great to be with you. Well, I know that reactionary and hate-fueling media have been with us for a while, but reading the statements from the grandson of Andrew Lester, the 85-year-old white man who shot black 16-year-old Ralph Yarl when the teenager simply rang his doorbell, the statements from the grandson that he and his grandfather used to be close but that that unraveled as Lester, he said, fell down the right-wing rabbit hole and began watching Fox News all day, every day, blaring in his living room. Those statements really kind of squeezed my heart because they took me back to when Fair was doing work around Rush Limbaugh, and we would get these really plaintive phone calls from people saying, I remember one, you know, My husband used to be so kind and so open-hearted, but then he started going out to the barn with his brother and listening to Rush Limbaugh. So besides memoir and historical analysis and ideas for fighting back, the film and the book are also a kind of 
communal release, uh, a, a sharing of what had been a private lament of a lot of family of folks who had been lost to this sinkhole. You know, for me, it, it, it gets a lot of power from that, I think. Reading about that really affected me. It also rang bells, of course, because back in the 90s, I was watching my father sink down the rabbit hole. And what many people have a problem with is they think that this media just attracts those who already, you know, have these beliefs, have these prejudices, have this hatred, have this racism. But I know for a fact that's not necessarily true. I was growing up in the 60s, and I remember at the time, everybody was super aware that, hey, we're no longer racist. We're open-minded. You know, and then there was the hippies, and then everything was on the table, and it was pretty much everybody adopted that. I don't want to call it an ideology, but uh, the idea of openness and, you know, loving other people. Mm no matter what they were or who they loved. And then to experience my father's personality change was just frightening. It was like watching the invasion of the body snatchers. And then around the same time he was changing, he would say these things, and I would have friends come out and say the same exact thing around the same time. I'll give you an example. Like one time I was visiting and he said, by the way, Jen, there's no such thing as organic. And I'm like, hmm, okay, where did that come from? And then a girlfriend of mine came up from Texas and we had lunch. And she said to me, by the way, Jen, there's no such thing as organic. And I'm like, wait a minute. So, yeah, that story about his grandfather, Andrew, who uh, shot Yarl, was particularly upsetting. And I just think so many people are being, especially these older people, the last few years of their lives are being ruined. They're miserable. They hate. They're paranoid. They're obsessed. They're not enjoying themselves. The grandson said the grandfather sat in his chair all day and just watched, I think it was mostly Fox, but the rabbit hole is the rabbit hole, no matter what entrance you take. Right. Yeah, you know, if I had any message for anybody, it would be that this media is potent, it's powerful, it's meant to change people, and it does change people. Well, and, and you know, the film is, of course, about your dad, about Frank Senko, and listeners should know that story has a happy ending, you know, but while it is your story, I'm just underscoring that I feel that you made it because you understood that it was not only your story. And at one point you say in the film, I finally decided to make a film to figure it out, you know, which I think a lot of creative people will relate to, you know, let me make something about this so that I can kind of lay it out there and think about it, right? Right. And in the process of making the film, I called it at that time a phenomenon. Now I call it an epidemic. Like I said in the film, like once I posted it on Kickstarter that I was doing this movie, I had I didn't know where all these people came from or how they heard about it, but they contacted me. And just I mean, over the years since the film, it, actually the film was released in 2016. 
2016. IMDb got it wrong. So. <laughs> Sorry um, about that. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> um, it, we were at Traverse City in 2015, and that's that's how the date got in there. We did a work in progress. We showed that. But, yeah, so I've heard of, from thousands of people over the years about how their loved one, whoever it was, actually changed. And regarding my dad's change back, I think that's a really, really important note that when I used to do interviews, I would leave it off because I thought, well, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody. But there's going to be people that are listening that aren't going to see the movie. The important thing to know is that my dad changed back to himself. And it was through removal of that media. Do you want me absolutely, to... absolutely? I think it's kind of a remarkable story in a way. It is, and I laugh just because it makes me happy. So my parents in 2010 they moved to a senior community, and somewhere in the in the move, my dad's radio broke, and he put it in the garage, and it just sat there, and he didn't fix it. So immediately. He was sans his three-hour lunches with Rush Limbaugh. So he kind of actually mellowed a little bit right away. And we didn't want to remind him, you know, you've got to fix your radio or whatever. So that was a really, really, really big, big thing. Probably, mm, I'd say the, maybe the first biggest thing. Then the second thing that happened is, I guess it was mm, a few months later, the TV in the kitchen that they watched during lunch uh, was very old, and my mom got a new one, and she programmed the remotes, and they had stickies all over them, mm-hmm. you know, do this, do that, do that. So my dad didn't bother. He just left on what, what she had on. I think she watched MSNBC or just, just different, mm-hmm. you know, various news shows. They always watched the news. And then, hmm, might have been a year later, I'm not sure, sometime later, my dad went into the hospital for a kidney stone, and he was there for a week. And they had these really old computers, and my mom was afraid that the computers were getting clogged up. And she asked me to delete some of his email, but I said, look, they just they just keep coming. You have to unsubscribe them, and I, I don't have time to do that. So she did it. But she added something. She not only unsubscribed him from all this vile email from, I mean, dozens of hard-right Republican organizations. She subscribed him to what she was reading, independent, more progressive media emails, like alternate, reader-supported news, uh, truth out, that kind of thing. (laughs) And when he got back from the hospital, I don't think he noticed. They were just political emails, and he was reading them. You know, he had a little bit of both, whatever. And then one day, it was after lunch, I think he had been watching Obama on the news. He said to my mom, "Uh, I I like that guy. You know, he's pretty good. And lo and behold, he ended up voting for him. But, okay, so the point isn't that his politics became aligned with ours. The point was that my dad was like free and happy and singing and and not angry and not hateful. And 
it was the last few years of his life. And we became really close where it had really kind of damaged us and damaged relationships before. This media is so potent as it's meant to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, longtime FAIR analyst Steve Rendell, who along with FAIR founder Jeff Cohen, appears in this work. Steve is an expert in talk radio, and he would often describe its power as having to do with the way it was consumed, which I think your experience just underscores. You know, um, in the case of your father, he started listening on a long solo commute to work. For other folks, it's going out to the barn with their brother. But, you know, it has to do with the way certain kinds of media not just the way they talk to you, but the way they talk to you in a sort of isolated format. And and yeah, right. this is where I think the book helps people see that this isn't accidental, that the messages that were coming through, it wasn't just your father. There was a game plan. It wasn't an unintended effect. The effect that it had on your father, making him angry, making him hateful, and making him particularly hateful towards particular groups, all of that was intentional. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Fan or not, Hillary Clinton, she was spot on in 1998 when she said there was a vast right-wing conspiracy. But the conspiracy wasn't just against her husband. Basically, far-right libertarian Republicans, you know, starting back in the 50s, actually, after Brown versus Board of Education, figured out that in order to affect the change they wanted, which was basically one party ruled by billionaire white men, they would have to create distrust in mainstream media. And one major way to do that was they had to label it as liberal. And that changed a lot of things right there. It was a very successful campaign. Mainstream or corporate media fell right into the trap. They folded. They leaned right. You know, they bent over backwards to not be labeled liberal media. And it's stuck today. And it's like they were like abused spouses, like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what did, what did we do wrong? But they didn't know that or understand that there was this plan. So control over the media was an easy-peasy way to get ordinary citizens into voting against their own interests and in line with billionaires. But eventually, of course, it metastasized to what it is today, like a weed that took over the whole garden. Mm -hmm. But the plan, if you want me to go into some detail and mention some of the points... Pick some highlights. You know, the book does go through a number of landmarks in the creation of this right-wing media machine. We're talking about history here and not, you know, guesses about things. These are things that are documented. But there are a few things that stand out as, you know, important and moving us toward the situation we have now. Right. So in in 1969, after Goldwater lost to Johnson, Reed Irvine started AIM Accuracy in Media, supposed media watchdog group. It was really more of a media attack dog group. They still exist today. But they were the ones that first took on um, this goal to discredit the media's liberal. And interestingly enough, that same year, Roger Ailes, the creator of Fox, he was working with Nixon to improve his television image. And anyway, the following year, he submitted a memo to the White House, which had a scheme to create a new show that would put the GOP in a good light. Later on, then, that came in handy when Rupert Murdoch hired him to create Fox. But then the next year was Lewis Powell memo. Mm-hmm. 
this was monumental. And it was secret at first until a journalist discovered it. But nobody paid attention to it because it was just, it was like Goebbels said about the big lie. Like, you can't believe that people would actually do this. But it basically outlined steps to take for the vast right-wing conspiracy. It was designed as a anti-New Deal blueprint to undo, like, the New Deal and squelch all the social changes that were going on at the time. You know, they were going to influence college campuses, the pulpits, the media, corporate influence over scientists, and to create and fund think tanks, basically to push the free market philosophy. And then there was, in the 80s, the creation of the CNT, which was Christian-based, and thus the marriage with evangelicals happened. So the group got bigger. Then Reagan Mm -hmm. made Rupert Murdoch a citizen, (laughs) and he killed the Fairness Doctrine. And then the next year after the Fairness Doctrine was killed, we had Rush Limbaugh go national. And he reigned for decades, poisoning the minds of, I think his following was like 20 million people, not to speak of they caught him in the military, so poisoning their minds too. But then the final big blow came with Clinton and Gingrich and their Telecommunications Reform Act of 1996, which opened up media ownership and cross-ownership, so all the big media companies got even bigger and squeezed out any, like, independent ownership. And then after that, just eight months later, Fox News was hatched. That's it in a nutshell. I do go into a lot more detail in the book. The book covers a lot of this history, and I just want to underscore the book and the film are not negative. They're colorful and engaging, and they're forward-looking, you. you know, which I think is is maybe the most important thing. And and so maybe yeah. to, to, to bring us up, you know, to now, I know a lot of listeners will be listening and thinking, oh, you know, Fox fired Tucker Carlson. And so, you know, maybe that means things are going in a good direction. But you and I know that whatever Carlson was fired for, it wasn't for years of sowing hatred against black and brown people against uh, it wasn't years of punching down because that has been his stock and trade for years. So you also and not alone suggest that what we are learning around Fox's admissions, which are still coming out around the lawsuit around Dominion and the voting machines, that that ought to remind us that Fox is not caring about its own viewers in the same way that it didn't care about your dad and that it doesn't care about lots of other folks, you know. And I just want to say a lot of folks are going to take that and say, well, I've done what I can do about Fox because I don't watch it. And Hell that's no. really all I can do. So what what more can people do besides being angry, besides being sad and bewildered by all of the things that this book and this movie talk about? What are some things that you think people could do? Well, first is to be aware of Rupert Murdoch, because before Tucker Carlson, there was Glenn Beck, then there was Bill O'Reilly, and then there was Roger Ailes. Okay, so he's just going to hire somebody else that's going to push forward his libertarian, let's turn people into Republicans so we can get tax cuts and deregulation for billionaires. So. Rupert Murdoch. So mention him as often as you can. Let people be aware. So as far as 
Fox is concerned, I mean, there's so much right-wing media. Fox is the tip of the iceberg, but it's still a tip. It's almost like if we can cut off its head, the head of the monster, uh, that would be good. But one thing that we must do, we all must do, we must work to get Fox off of military bases. I mean, come on. They say they want to get de-radicalized the military. They can't be serious unless they get Fox off of the military. Every day they're radicalizing our men and women. I mean, January 6th, that had a large percentage of those that were arrested January 6th were, well, they were military uh, or ex-military. And one other thing about Fox, do you know that you pay about $2 a month in your cable fee for Fox, whether you watch it or not? Yeah. So that bundling, that bundling packaging where you're paying for stuff that you don't even watch, and that includes subsidizing Fox. Yeah, and that's how they make their money, not so much ads. But you can petition your cable company to not pay Fox's cable fee. And right now they're negotiating with cable companies for a higher fee, probably in order to compensate for the 787 million suit by Dominion they have to pay for, which, by the way, they can deduct part of that from their taxes as a cost of doing business. But anyway, Media Matters has an easy nofoxfee.com webpage. You can just click on one of their buttons, like if you have Spectrum or whatever you have. You can just click on a button and then send them a message, or they have the phone number there. You can call them. That should be easy enough to do. It would take about five minutes. And it'll make you feel really good if you do that. And then support local journalism and independent media like FAIR. So there are resources also in the book for actions that folks can take because it's not a dispiriting book. It's about things that we can do to resist what we acknowledge is a corrosive influence on our conversation and on, as the story tells, on our families and our relationships. Uh, done three documentaries and I've watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documentaries and I was always pissed off when they would present all this negative stuff and then just leave you with that like don't do that tell me what I can do or tell me what other people are doing at least so we don't feel hopeless you know that doesn't motivate people We've been speaking with filmmaker, activist, and author Jen Senko. You can learn more about the film and the book out now from Sourcebooks at thebrainwashingofmydad.com. There's lots of resources there in terms of taking this conversation forward. Thank you so much, Jen Senko, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me on, Janine. This was great. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our site, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.